Dr. Tumblin introduced our international scholars. I'd like to introduce a domestic scholar. My youngest son is a student across the street at Asbury University, and I'm honored that he's here with us uh, today. Uh, when God introduced his son, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I'll translate that into Texan. This is my boy, and I like him. <laughs> Thanks for being here, Samuel. <clears throat> it was the late uh, Dennis Kinlaw who helped me to see that one of the distinctive features of Wesleyan theology is the fatherhood of God. It begins not with the omnipotence of God, nor with the sovereignty of God, but a theological system that begins with the fatherhood of God. And when you start with the theological concept of the fatherhood of God, your theological system suddenly begins to become much more personal. Sin is now relational rather than legal. Adam and Eve are disobedient, yes, but this disobedient results from a distrust of God and of his goodness. Salvation is incomplete if all you experience is the forgiveness of sins. Like the older son in the prodigal son story, you can be living in the father's house, but still not be in right relationship with the father. So on sabbatical last year, I tried reading through the Bible, noting all the places and the references that contain something about uh, fatherhood and all the places that represent the fatherhood of God. Now, I'm first a theologian, and I work at trying to discern the character and the ways of God. But I'm also a social scientist that tries to read and understand the lives of men and women. And when those interface, I dig in the shovel because I think I'm mining for gold. So this brings me to the town of Sychar in Galilee and to our text for today. The setting is an interesting one. Galilee lies to the north, Judea lies to the south, in between the two lies Samaria. To a large degree, whenever Jesus enters Galilee, he finds a receptive audience. Whenever he enters Judea, he largely finds rejection. By chapter 4 of John's Gospel, Jesus has already cleansed the temple and is in conflict with the Jewish leaders. Foreseeing this mounting conflict, yet realizing that his hour has not yet come, Jesus makes a decisive and intentional break with Judea and all that it represents. Judea rejecting him, Jerusalem rising up against him, and our text tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Some translations read, he must go through Samaria. It's an important phrase because this would not be the standard route for a Jew to travel from Judea to Galilee. Ordinarily, Jews would avoid Samaria in order to avoid being defiled and skirt around it. So why did Jesus must needs go? Why did he have to go through Samaria? Well, if you do your methodical Bible study well, paying attention to the context and understanding the whole of what Jesus is aiming at in this gospel, you begin to see a broad picture of why Jesus must needs go to Samaria. On a grand scale, Jesus is using the story to recenter the location of worship. Jews located the proper center for worship in Jerusalem. Samaritans located it in Mount Gerizim. We'll get to the history momentarily. Jesus came to establish that the focus of worship was not to be found in a place, but in a person. In the same way that God established a tabernacle in the wilderness and a temple in Israel so that he could pitch his tent and have a place to dwell among his people, so John begins his gospel saying that the Lagos, 
the word that was from the beginning, that became flesh and dwelt among us, the glory that once settled upon the tabernacle could now be found in him, full of grace and truth. The same God that has sought time and again to create a way that his people could dwell with him is once more seeking a way to be with them. And so on a grand scale, John tells his story and has Jesus must needs go to Samaria because it allows him to narrate a different center for worship. But on a micro scale, on a more personal level perhaps, <clears throat> Jesus must needs go to, to Samaria because there's a woman in Samaria who needs what only the Father can give. My wife taught me that sometimes artists create contrast to use a background to make more vivid the subject that they're trying to paint. The background again which, against which John sets this story is vivid. In chapter 2, John records that on the third day, on the third day, after calling his disciples, Jesus performed the first of his signs. Six stone water pots of approximately 30 gallons of water. Volumes of water needed to wash away contamination, symbolic of the old vessels used for purification, are filled at Jesus' command, and he turns this water into wine, issuing in the new covenant, the Chardonnay of resurrection life all of which takes place at a wedding banquet in Cana of Galilee. That would make some pretty fantastic uh, Facebook photos, wouldn't it? But now see the contrast. The very next time that Jesus has a conversation with the woman in John's gospel is at Jacob's well. This woman has no wedding memories to celebrate. The wine from her marriages has all been drunk and left a bitter taste. There seems a gaping hole in her soul that five husbands and a current cohabitation partner has not been able to fill. And the text tells us that Jesus must needs go to Samaria. At Jacob's well, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. By most scholars reckoning, it's about noonday. Ordinarily, women come to draw water together, but this woman has sought no company. The social markers of her disorderly life have left her marginalized and scorned. She's by some, estimate, by some accounts a woman, a Samaritan, a polygamist, a scorned lover, and a loner. And the word that was in the beginning, through whom all things came into being, and apart from whom not one thing came into being, the word that was made flesh and came to dwell among us, and in this flesh experienced our own human limitation, grows weary and thirsty from the journey, and asks this Samaritan woman for a drink. It's a beautiful line from Mozart's Requiem Mass that captures the irony so beautifully. Seeking me, thou settest there weary. Seeking me, thou settest there weary. The weary Jesus asked the woman for a drink. Now, we can only speculate what the Samaritan woman might have conjectured from this peculiar request. Jewish teaching warned rabbis of lingering in conversation with the woman. And certainly she would know that any Jew would find themselves defiled to drink from the same utensil as a Samaritan woman. But she probably also knew the ancient stories of Jacob finding his wife Rebekah at a watering hole. And from her reputation, at least, we might could surmise that uh, she could have believed and been accustomed to the solicitation of men. So perhaps she wondered if this was a flirtatious conversation. 
She uses no word of salutation. She simply asks, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from a woman of Samaria? And Jesus poses the contingency that serves as the title of my sermon today. If only you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. I chose it as a title, if only you knew, because I hope the words will insert themselves into your self-talk and into your private ruminations. When your anxious repinings overwhelm you about what the future holds, if only you knew. When you question your competence and confidence wanes of whether you can be the minister, the missionary, the therapist, the leader that you came to seminary to become, if only you knew. When the woundedness that stalks your life and seeks to define you with a sense of fatedness, if only you knew. Oh child, if only you knew this gift and who it was that was offering, you could be given living water. Perhaps Fanny Crosby captured it best when she wrote, down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving heart, awakened by kindness, cords that were broken can vibrate once more. Some have asked, what exactly was the gift of God that Jesus was offering to give this woman? Many say it was the gift of the Spirit symbolized by the living waters. Others point to the fact that later in the text, Jesus offers himself as the Messiah that could save her soul. Still further, the passage suggests that Jesus points to the Father who is seeking those to worship him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all contained in 26 verses and all encircling a woman in hospitality, beckoning and wooing him into fellowship with himself. What a beautiful picture. Addressing the stranger with a term of respect, the woman says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get that living water? Confused in her thinking, but arrested by the phrase living water, she goes back to the history of her people. And Jesus presses her to deeper understanding, to see the spiritual meaning behind which he was making the offer. The water that I give will become in you a spring of water welling up to everlasting life. He brings her to a point of receptivity and she's asked, Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to thirst again and have to keep coming here to draw water. And it's then that Jesus says to her, Go call your husband and come back. Whoa. That's pretty personal. Pretty intrusive, Jesus. Why that? After all, she's at the point of profession of faith, so why bring this up? It would seem as if Jesus knew that if this woman was to have the perpetual well of water springing up in her soul, there first must be what our friends in recovery ministry call a searching and fearless moral inventory. He brings her uncomfortably to moral investigation and to correction. And might I submit that this may well be a missing element that needs reclamation in our professions of faith and our journeys of discipleship today. And the woman does what we're so apt to do. The probing turns to moral investigation. She becomes evasive. I have no husband. What does that have to do with you? That's none of your business. I want no interference. End of conversation. Defriend. 
<laughs> now with no contempt, no bitterness or shaming, but a simple statement of facts, Jesus tears through her mask and moves beyond her denial. What you said is true. You've had five husbands and you live, your live-in boyfriend is not your husband. You can't hide from me, child. I know you and I know all about you. You know, I used to be afraid of that kind of knowledge, that God knows all about me. But after walking with God now about five decades, I think it's now perhaps the most hopeful thing, both in this life and for the life to come. Because it's in patience and in relentless insistence, unbending to my rationalizations and my justifications, that the Father persists in his desire for me to become holy. I love the words of Mother Teresa when she said, I am the bride of Christ, and I find that he's a very difficult man to live with. <laughs> the woman, growing in her respect, acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet. But once again, she evades his offer, this time with a theological observation. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus declared to her, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So let, permit me here to uh, insert a brief lesson on the history of Samaria, Samaria and then see if I can bring us home. When the Assyrians conquered Samaria, Shalmaneser report, deported the Israelites to Assyria and brought Assyrians back into Samaria who brought their own gods with them. Worship of Jehovah was simply added to their worship of other gods. Over time, they came to worship Yahweh alone, but their beliefs had some interesting kinds of peculiarities. For example, they only regarded the Pentateuch as authoritative, cutting out the Psalms, the prophets, and other Old Testament books. Furthermore, when the Jews actually returned from exile back to the promised land, the Samaritans offered to help them rebuild their temple. The Jews refused, questioning whether or not they were racially or religiously pure. So great hostility was engendered between the two nations. Barred from Jerusalem, the Samaritans had their own holy hotspots. On the place where they believed that Joseph's bones were buried, where they believed that Abraham had offered up Isaac, they built their own temple. So the Samaritans had their temple, but the Jews, on the other hand, believed that the law taught that there could only be one place for worship, and so only one point, uh, and so uh, one point, the Jews actually attacked the Samaritans' uh, uh, center of worship. A descendant of Judas Maccabeus burned the temple at Samaria, deepening the chasm between these two groups. So how interesting then that against this history, Jesus makes this rather stunning statement. There is no ultimate value in Gerizim. There's no ultimate value in Jerusalem. It's not a question of locality or style or form in worship. Rather to worship is to get down to the deepest things in your personality, to spirit and to truth. It's not about being in the right congregation or whether you feel something in worship. It's about right content and right intent. Jesus habitually spoke of God as Abba. With zeal, he referred to the temple as my father's house. He taught us to pray by saying our father, 
All the disciples pick up on this prayer of Jesus and they write in their epistles, this is to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about where you worship, it's how you worship. And how you worship has everything to do with worshiping God as Father. Many people today are writing about the post-Christian society in which we live, claiming that we live as exiles. And in many ways, I think it's sadly true. There are segments of American culture that mirror Babylon, the great whore in the book of Revelation that says it's drinking the saints of the blood, the blood of the saints. But I also think that there are many of us who live and minister in Samaria. This Samaritan woman knows her religious history. She can tell you the way her people have traditionally worshipped. She's not unfamiliar with conversations about God. She can even recognize a prophet when in front of her, and yet such knowledge has not created in her the capacity to sustain her most intimate relationships. Her religious ideas have been co-opted and shaped as much by the political animosity of her day than by the revelation of God in her midst. Nationalism is embedded in her in a vague sense of loyalty. There's some residue of devotion, but it can't produce the reformation of heart that's so deeply needed and that was substituting for the kingdom of God that was drawing near to her in this very moment. Is there any chance that we could find ourselves living on Samaritan soil today? The Old Testament prophet spoke of a coming day when not one central sanctuary alone could contain the place to meet God, but the whole earth would be the habitation of the name and the glory of God. The great privilege we have is to faith the conditions of that coming age into our present time. Theologians call it a realized eschatology, the life and worship of the age to come, possessed and enjoyed here and now, as in heaven, so now on earth, rendered in the present by those who are true worshipers of spirit and truth. And this, says Jesus, is what the Father seeks. The woman said unto him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things, saying more than perhaps she even knows. Beyond the depth of what her heart could fully ascertain, I hear the woman saying in effect, Sir, I know a day is coming when all the religious problems of the day, the persecutions, the prejudices, the divisions, the infightings, the killings, will all be cleared up for us, when our expectations will finally be vindicated, when a prophet like Moses will return and explain all mysteries, when Elijah will be discharged again to speak to power and bring it under subjection to the holy, when my own wounded heart will find its resting place, I know that Messiah is coming. And Jesus, now seeing that she is ready, speaks into her tired and restless heart, I who speak to you am he. Amen.